Welcome to our second webinar of the Construction Claims uh, Litigation Webinar Series here at Lois Law Firm. For those of you joining me for the very first time, my name is Tashia Rasul. I am a partner here at Lois Law, Law Firm. I oversee the construction defense practice team here where we handle exclusively construction uh, workers' compensation claims. Um, also, before we get into it, I'd like to make an announcement for anyone who has not yet heard or who didn't join the webinar last month, but I did release a book. Um, it's a handbook uh, focusing on defending construction claims in New York. Um, if you'd like a copy, send me an email and I'll get a copy out to you immediately. There's also a PDF copy available if, if um, you'd rather that and not a hard copy. But let me know, free of cost, I can send it to you. It's an overview of uh, construction claims and defending workers' compensation and general liability claims in New York State. All right, so I hope everyone had a good Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I, cer I certainly did, and I'm going to try to make this not boring, a little bit of interest, a little, a, a little bit interesting, sorry, I can't even talk now for all of you. Um, it can be a little dry, but here's what we'll discuss today. We'll talk about New York's labor law. We'll also talk about trends in New York construction claims. Also, a very exclusive um, look into what the judges are saying, and I'll tell you a lot about that and how we can use it to our advantage in defending construction claims. And just as a reminder, this is a live webinar, so please feel free to ask questions in the end, um, and I will give you the answers live. All right, so let's get into it. Sorry, I'm a little slow with the slides here today. <laughs> so let's start with the law. I'm not going to go into them too much, but I think it's important to have an understanding of the laws that we're dealing with on the general liability or the civil side. And, you know, so just as a background, the reason we're focusing on this is because even though our focus is on the uh, workers' compensation claim, in almost every construction uh, accident, there is a uh, civil liability, general liability component to it. And the fact of the matter is, the reality is, the workers' compensation claim drives the general liability claim. And there's a lot that goes on in the civil claim that we can also use to defend the workers' compensation claim. So even though we handle the workers' compensation claims, we do have a good understanding of the law on the other side. Um, and I think it's important for us to all understand how the law works, how it applies, and you know tips and tricks that we can use to try to defy the law for lack of better term so in general common law you know provides that every contractor owner must provide a safe working environment for workers which is fair it's understandable however there's also statutory laws which the claimants are really taking advantage of, and I'm not even kidding when I say they're actually taking advantage of it, they're milking the system. Um, so the first law that's applicable that we see applying very often to the construction claims are labor, is labor law section 200. And this is where the accident is caused by the manner in which or the tools that the contractor uses to perform the, the work. So it could be 
a small tool, it can be big machinery, and it also applies where the accident is caused by a dangerous condition on the work site. So what's a classic example of this? Your trip and fall. For example, there's um, a log in the middle of the job site and the workers helping others to carry something else doesn't see the log, trips, trips over it. In that particular situation, uh, labor law section 200 is going to be analyzed to find liability. The second one that we're going to look at is, oh, before I get to the second one, I'm sorry. So for labor law section 200, it's important to know two things. It must be shown that the contractor had authority to dictate the work that's being performed. And this is usually easy for the, the claimant or the plaintiff to prove because whoever the general contractor is or the main employer on the job site, they're the ones who's very aware of the conditions. Um, and they're the ones who's actually directing how the work's going out. So it's usually pretty clear cut. There are situations where it's not so clear cut though. Also, it must be shown that the contractor either created the dangerous condition or knew about it and did not remedy it. Classic situations would be where, you know, there was just a new delivery of materials and they were left in the, the main walkway and the employer or the contractor knew about it and didn't do anything about it to, to remove it as soon as possible before work started on that day. Someone tripped over it or something fell on someone. That would be a classic example of how section 200, um, the plaintiff would be able to meet his burden of, of showing that it was violated. All right, so the next very common, very, very common statute that's applicable in New York City, especially with all of the high-rise constructions, it's Labor Law Section 240. I'm sure many of you have heard of this one. It's referred to commonly as a scaffold law. And it's it's really it's really simple to understand. It's when some type of elevation is involved. And even though it's referred to as a scaffold law, it can apply to um, if a worker was on a ladder of any sort or even um, on like a second or third story of a building, they don't necessarily have to be on a scaffold. Um, contractors are required to provide workers with safety devices and measures to protect them from the elevated related accidents and injuries, which means they have to provide the harnesses, the hard hats, um, and any other necessary measures to ensure they're elevated securely. However, even with the protections, accidents are bound to happen. The only defense in this um, with regards to labor law section 240 is a sole proximate cause defense. Other than that, it's a strict liability. Um, if the employer is found to be uh, in violation of uh, section 240, they will be found to be negligent. And the third very common one is labor law 241. Now it's interesting because the law actually lays out um, the criteria and methods for performing work in a job site. So this is Labor Law 241. It contains specific provisions for construction, demolition, excavation, and job sites, and addresses falls and cave-ins and how job sites must be arranged to protect workers. If a floor is being constructed, it tells you exactly how it has to be constructed. So this is the one that really uh, details the, in, the ins and outs of how construction is to be done on a job site. One of the problems I see with this one, really in favor of the claimant, is that 
the, the, the procedures aren't always followed and the employer or the contractor or the owner, they're the ones who are blamed for it. So, um, you know, I, a lot of the construction claims uh, are being brought under a Section 241 violation. So these are the three most uh, popular labor law statutes that are um, being used in these civil claims in New York State, and it's uh, it, it's one of it's it's really one of those situations where because there is a workers' compensation claim, also information can be used in both sides to really defend these claims. So next, I wanted to talk about some trends we've been doing construction claims for quite a while now. We work closely with uh, general liability attorneys. We understand what's going on in their end. And we're very familiar with the laws and how the claimants are bringing the claim. And I wanted to go over with you just a few trends that we've seen and how we can actually, um, how we can actually collaborate with the civil side to overcome these trends or to stop these trends. So one of the things that we've noticed is that the plaintiff's firms were stepping into the workers' compensation arena. A few years ago, there were only workers' compensation firms and there were only civil defense firms, but I will not mention any names. There are a handful of plaintiff's firms, civil defense firms, that are now handling workers' compensation claims. The good news for us is they're now very familiar and educated with the workers' compensation domain, and it's our job to be on top of our game to ensure that we're doing um, all of the all of the things that are necessary so that their case is not as strong as they think it would be due to their lack of familiarity. The other thing that we've seen is that more and more, whoops, here I go with the slides again, more and more they're using the workers' compensation claims to maximize their um, the exposure in the civil claim. So you'll hear about claimants needing this unnecessary surgery or him having to be out of work later, or wanting to add, you know, a traumatic brain injury when it was just a, a pinky crush and he's now psychologically disabled. The truth of the matter is most of these claimants don't have these consequential conditions, but the reason they're trying to add it into the workers' compensation claim is because they can use it to prove their, um, their exposure on the general liability side, telling the judges, hey, judge, this was a work-related accident. These are all the injuries he sustained in the work-related in the work-related accident. So we should get our $20 million jury verdict that we're looking for. The other thing is traumatic brain injury is really the new spinal fusion. Several years ago, everyone was trying to get the spinal fusion into their claim, into the workers' compensation claim. It's still happening, but we're seeing more and more of traumatic brain injuries being claimed. And like I said, sometimes they're in often ridiculous situations where there was no injury to the head, no loss of consciousness, a body part nowhere close to the head was even um, injured. And then somehow a year or two down the line, the mechanism of injury is changing to show that there's traumatic brain injury as a result of it. The, the juries in New York are very sympathetic to traumatic brain injuries, and because of this, the in, in cases where they are found to um, be as a result of the accident, the juries are awarding verdicts that are significantly high. So we need to keep this in mind in combating traumatic brain injury. I know we used to see cases where it's a 
established and not a lot's been going on in terms of treatment, but now they're actively treating with a couple of well-known doctors in New York. I will refrain from mentioning them, their names as well. Um, so how do we combat the exploitation of New York labor laws? And I'm not really afraid to say that the claimants are exploiting the laws because I think they are. They're really using it to their advantage. I mean, some very enough accidents happen in the work site, but sometimes they're really, really minor accidents and ouchie, a band-aid is needed. But after they speak with an attorney, it becomes something way more significant. So let's talk a little bit about how we can, we can really do something to combat this. And this is really going to be the theme of our, our webinar series this year as we focus on coordination between workers' compensation and general liability defense. So the first way we recommend, and we've actually seen results from doing this over and over, is collaboration between workers' compensation and general liability defense. From the first day that an accident happened, even before compensability is determined, we should be talking to general liability defense. If you are the adjuster handling the file or the risk manager, you should be asking both sides, workers' comp and the GL side, hey, what's going on? Do we have an investigation? Um, is this going to be an accepted or denied claim? Everyone really needs to be on the same page from the very first day. Speaking of investigation, we recommend that investigation be conducted immediately. Whether it's on the workers' compensation side or the general liability side, where it's a cloaked investigation, the very first day is when the investigation should happen. The reason is the construction is an organism. It changes, it can change by the hour, it can change by the day, the week, as they go through the phases, machinery are removed, uh, workers are no longer there. And waiting a week or two weeks or even a month could be too late to conduct the investigation. Um, this is a legal issue, but using something called collateral estoppel is very, very important. As I mentioned earlier, the workers' compensation claim really drives the general liability claim, and it moves at a, a much faster pace. And because it moves at a much faster pace, we can get findings in workers' compensation that can be used um, in the civil in the civil case. For example, we can get body parts. Well, from the very beginning, we can get a claim disallowed, or we can get body parts disallowed. We can get a fraud finding. And these findings in and of, of themselves can be used in the general liability claim to combat exposure. We've seen this happen a lot, and um, we highly recommend that uh, there, there be coordination between workers' compensation defense and the civil defense in order to uh, utilize this tactic. Um, all right, so in order to collaborate, there are some civil milestones we should keep in mind and we should always be asking about. I know one of the things that we do here in our practice is every time we're aware of a workers' compensation claim, one of the first things we ask, who is the General Liability Defense Council? What's the status of the General Liability Claim? And we ask about all these things I'm about to talk about. So just to keep in mind, the general statute of limitations is three years for negligence claims in New York. and Unfortunately, in New York, a workers' compensation claim can be 
at permanency in as little as, let's say, two years if there's a surgery very close to the date of the accident. So we can be very far along in litigating the workers' compensation claim, and the civil claim is now only starting. And this is why it's extremely important that the workers' compensation claim is properly handled and defended because it can be used in the civil claim. So for public entities, something to note is that there must be a 90 days public entity notice. The claimant or the plaintiff must provide notice that he intends to bring a suit within 90 days. If this is not done, then he'll have to file all sorts of motion. And in our experience, the, the court is not very lenient. So we're always hopeful that they're going to miss this deadline. Um, 50H hearings for public entities, these are very, these are pretty much depositions, but they're just called uh, 50H hearings because they're governed by the statutes and they're only for public entities. And it's really um, an extensive deposition of the plaintiff or the claimant to determine what exactly happened, the injuries he's claiming, lost wages. You can also get information regarding his um, prior injuries, his personal life, anything is really fair game in these 50H hearings. And this is, this is perhaps the main reason we like having this transcript because it tells us so much more than we ever have the opportunity to ask the claimant about in the workers' compensation claim. And we've also used these in several cases to pursue a fraud finding because the 50H hearings are a, um, it's a sworn testimony, and if he testifies to something there that's contradictory to what he's testifying to in workers' compensation court, we can certainly pursue fraud. So if, perchance, you are, um, you know, working with a public entity, this is something very important to share with uh, your workers' compensation defense attorney. We also need to know when the complaints file, when the answer is filed, and very importantly, the bill of particulars, because the bill of particulars outline exactly the injuries he's claiming, um, which is which which we often compares to what is being claimed in the workers' compensation claim. Sometimes we see odd things where they're not pursuing certain body parts in the workers' compensation claim, but then they're pursuing it in the general liability claim. We're like, oh, okay, all right, so we can get it knocked off. And then a year later, they're pursuing it in the workers' compensation claim because it was an oopsie and they're like, we need to get it established in our end. Uh, depositions of um, the plaintiff, the, the, the plaintiff, and um, any witnesses or any doctors. It's important to know when those are happening and for us to get the transcripts. Similarly, on the workers' compensation side, um, the the transcripts can be provided to the civil attorney. Um, it's also very, very important to know when the mediations are happening. So. I'll be going over mediations and the importance of having your workers' compensation defense team at the mediation at a later webinar, but I can tell you it's extremely important, especially given the fact that the workers' the civil attorneys are not very familiar with the, the way things work in workers' compensation, and they also tend to give the mediator wrong information about what's going on in our end. So it's very important that we're there, we're involved in the mediation process, not the actual mediation, but in the background, providing our defense attorneys with information and being present to, you know, set set the record straight with regards to what's happening in the workers' compensation claim. A classic example is a few months ago, I attended a mediation where 
the plaintiff's attorney was um, telling the mediator that the claimant is scheduled for a neck surgery. And interestingly, about a month prior to that, we had the neck surgery actually denied. They did not file an appeal. And this was important because if he's not on, if the surgery is not authorized, but them telling the mediator that it is, then that's really misrepresenting, um, you know, the status of the claimant's condition and the treatment that he actually needs. So these are all things that we should keep in mind. Your attorneys should be familiar with and should be sharing with each other. We should also know when IMEs are being done, when they're obtaining expert reports or any other kind of reports, it's good to know. Of course, I will say this in the end, I know there are issues with, um, with regards to or concerns with regards to HIPAA uh, privacy. Of course, this is done subject to all HIPAA privacy. You know, we need the releases and we're extremely careful with what kind of protected health, health information we're sharing. All right, so, um, before I go on to what's next, I wanted to share a little bonus with you. I recently attended a conference where there were judges on the panels. One of the judges was one of the, um, the Supreme Court judge from the Bronx, and he actually shared some interesting information regarding um, what he's seen from the bench in these construction claims. The first thing he said was, um, the defense bar is a little behind the plaintiff's bar in, in terms of these cases. He said the plaintiff's firms are working together. They're very familiar with their law, with the law, and they're way ahead of the game than the defense bar is. Um, he's, he also said that what he's, what he's been seeing is that the defense uh, bar is not getting IMEs an expert in quickly. And it's, uh, it's, it's causing some difficulties in terms of um, establishing defenses and also combating um, the, the, the plaintiff's proposed value of a claim. Um, and interestingly also, he also mentioned that he's seeing way more TBI claims than he's been seeing many, many years ago. Um, just a word in summary judgment, he said that the summary judgment motions are being granted in some cases, but in a lot of cases, the facts are not clear and the court is leaning more towards not granting summary judgment uh, motions. So I thought this was interesting because the, the, the concerns that he's sharing, I think that's what we're addressing in this entire collaboration that we're encouraging um, employers and carriers to be engaging in. I think if there's collaboration between the Workers' Compensation and General Liability Defense Council, we can definitely get ahead of the game, both in workers' compensation and on the GL side. I think if we combat the traumatic brain injuries and in the workers' compensation claim, it's going to help reduce exposure in the civil claim also. I think we also need to take advantage of the fact that some of these big firms, the um, the ones who are ahead in the game on the civil side are the ones are actually the ones who are now coming into the workers' compensation arena. And we really need to take advantage of the fact that they're not very familiar with the system. Um, so we can help combat this, uh, what I call an exploitation of the labor law in New York. So that's my overview on the New York labor law, labor laws and defending construction, those the civil claims. I didn't want to get into too, too much detail because it can get a little dry, but if you do have any questions, 
um, feel free to type them in or you can email me after the webinar. But before I get to the questions, let's take a little look about what's next. So the next webinar is going to be in March 2nd. We do the webinars uh, once, once a month, the first Monday of every month. So mark your calendars for March 2nd, and we're going to continue to analyze the impact of the workers' compensation claims on the civil cases. We will be focusing on, we'll be doing a little bit of an overview of the workers' compensation law and um, issues that we see with regards to construction claims. Down the road, we'll talk about risk reduction and transfer schemes that can save the employer and insurance carrier a ton of money. We'll talk also about wrap-ups, OSIPs and CSIPs. This is very, very important. Um, it's, it's a complex scheme, which um, it's, it's becoming very prevalent in New York. And I think it's important to understand how they work because this can also save employers money. And we'll also talk about insurance policy coverage issues. And as always, I'll try to give as many real life examples as I possibly can. All right, so let's see if I have any questions pending. So I have one question here and it is, Are the workers' compensation carriers always forthcoming with information as their motive is to maximize their potential recovery or lean against a third party? And this question is from John. Okay, so I know this is a very this is a very common question, especially in cases where it's not a wrap-up situation in a wrap-up where it's an OSIP or a CSIP. They're always very amenable to sharing information because it's usually one common indemnitor, the owner of the project or the general contractor, and they really want to um, minimize overall exposure. But we do have a lot of clients who are not uh, part of a wrap-up, whether it's an OSIP or a CSIP, and they are amenable to sharing the information. The problem is your attorneys have to be explaining the need for the information because you are correct. They're interested in getting their section 29 lien back, which is still possible even with collaboration, which is still possible even with um, even under a wrap up policy. But I think the key is really to have your defense team educate them on um, the benefits of doing so. All right, so I have one more question from Esther. Esther is asking, in a civil lawsuit, how, how does this coordination take place if a general contractor is sued by the employee's, by the employee's subcontractor? So in that particular situation, it sounds like, Esther, and my apologies if I'm not fully understanding the question, it seems like it's not the employee himself bringing the claim, but it's actually his employer that's bringing the claim against the general contractor. So in, in that particular situation, I think um, the sharing of information might be a little more difficult, but still possible because there's a subpoena powers. Um, there might not be the same kind of coordination 
as a as in a workers compensation claim and in a civil claim that's actually brought by the uh, employer but it's definitely possible to um to do the coordination um also you know everything would be subject to HIPAA privacy laws but definitely the power of subpoena can address something like that all right i think that's all for the questions if you have anything else please feel free to send me an email or you can give me a call i did see a comment here that there was poor quality in screen i'm sorry you didn't get to see my face properly but um hopefully next time that's not going to be an issue well thank you all for joining um i know this is very brief but like i said feel free to give me a call or send me an email if you have any questions or anything come up later and also if you'd like a copy of my handbook all right, I see you in a month, everyone. Take care.